When I was a, in college, I worked as a landscaper for two, two and a half summers. And one of those summers, I almost went crazy. Literally. <clears throat> I was working for a guy, it was my second summer landscaping with him, and he had a team of people that I'd worked with the summer before, but for various reasons, all of them had either quit or kind of moved on to other jobs. And so the second summer that I was there, my sophomore year of college, <clears throat> I was, I was by myself a lot of the days. And uh, my boss actually also started to get into day trading. This was right when the internet had come out. So it was like year 2000, 1999, somewhere around there. So the internet was just starting to get big. And uh, he was just kind of like really wanting to kind of move into this, this, this realm of like trading stocks online during the day. And so uh, <clears throat> I don't know if he was good at it or not. I'm not sure where that, how that worked out for him. But what that meant is that I would take the big dump truck, the big black dump truck, and drive to all these different houses and just like pick weeds for eight hours. And uh, <clears throat> I can remember being at this one house with just these really beautiful gardens. It was in a, in a really picturesque town of Stonington, Connecticut. It was, it was near the water and um, just really beautiful thing. But just, you know, showing up in the morning and picking weeds and laying down mulch at this property. And, and just my mind just started to do weird things. Uh, I can't really explain the feeling, but I had have, have never felt something like that before, and, and really never since, where just long stretches of time, no communication with another person, there's no one around on this property, I don't even know if it was their summer home or what, it's just, just me and the weeds, you know, just pulling weeds, just thinking about stuff, but then there's just only so many thoughts you have, and then there's just nothing left, and you, and you just kind of start to detach and I can remember just being like, whoa, I need to just kind of like get a grip. This is, I don't know what's going on with my mind right now. I am feeling so weird, you know. And that went on for a few days, and I just, you know, eventually he started kind of working with me some, and, and, it, and it, I drifted out of that. But I never forgot that sense of like, I need to talk to Wilson, if you know what I'm saying, right? <clears throat> now, we all know that, you know, we need other people. Uh, you hear those stories of babies, you know, in, from you know, years ago in Romania that die from, you know, lack of attention, right? They're nourished, they're given food, but because they're not held, they actually cannot survive. We've heard those stories. Maybe you have a story of, you know, feeling lonely. Uh, we all know we, 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 we are social creatures, right? We need other people. But the question I want to I pose today is how much do we really need other people? And specifically as a church, one of our core values here is sharing life. We always say, you know, love God, share life, proclaim Jesus. How critical is sharing life really? We all live busy lives, right? We've got jobs, maybe you've got a family, right? You've got other, you know, hobbies or commitments in your life, make it to the gym, what is God really calling his people to when it comes to living life together outside of just a gathering of believers like this? We're continuing this series that we're actually calling Love God, Share Life, Proclaim Jesus. We're continuing that today in the first of two sermons on sharing life. And today we're focusing on sharing life with other people that are followers of Jesus. And here is what we're going to find. 
Jesus calls us not just to himself, but also to each other. Jesus' call to follow me is not done in isolation. He's always calling people together into a family. And here's where we're going to see this. Maybe many of you, if you've been around for a little while, you've heard this passage before. It's a classic passage from Acts chapter 2 at the start of the church. So if you've got a Bible, the last paragraph in Acts 2, we're going to start in verse 42. We're going to read and we're going to see this idea that I just mentioned in this passage. Acts 2, 42. Peter's just given the first sermon in the history of the church. Thousands of people become followers of Jesus. And then the church is growing in this area, and this is kind of the summary of what's happened right after that initial event of Pentecost and the preaching of the Word, and many people responding. It says in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. All right, I'm going to give you two minutes to process this with someone near you, okay? Main question is just, what stands out to you in this passage? What sticks out to you? So turn to someone next to you, say, hey, what stuck out to you as you heard that? Look at it again if you've got a Bible in front of you. What stands out to you in this passage? You've got two minutes, ready, go. Okay, 30 seconds or so. Make your last insightful observation. All right, just throw them out there with a loud voice. Every day? I heard you. Kathy Newby? Every day, doubling down. Great joy. Meeting people's needs. Yep. Amen. Yeah, so public acceptance. There is favor amongst all the people. Yep, good. Uh, this is good. There's a lot of details in this passage. Again, it's, it's kind of summarizing this first section in the book of Acts. 
One thing that really stands out to me that I, actually I haven't really thought about much before as I've read this passage tons and tons, I've preached on it before, but just the emphasis that there is a new community of people that had just formed. It's describing this community that came out of the preaching of the gospel for the first time, and it's forming a new little family. You know, Peter converts. There's thousands of converts at Peter's preaching, but they don't remain just converts. People don't just kind of go back to their normal way of life and kind of doing things. Somehow that people is brought together into a community and they are sharing life with one another in pretty in, uh, intense ways, right? Every day, sharing and meeting needs, some of these things you've mentioned. There's a new people, which also means a new identity. Now, the pagan religions of that day did not function in this way. The way it worked was there were different temples in different cities to different gods or goddesses, especially in the kind of the Greco-Roman world. So if you were an Ephesian, an Ephesian living in Ephesus, you had the temple to Artemis, the great Artemis, right? And you could go to that temple and worship in, in different ways, some of them, uh, you know, like some sketchy ways, so I'll just leave it at that, um, but also offering a sacrifice or things like that in that temple. But you would go as an individual seeking some favor or blessing or trying to, you know, push back maybe a potential curse from a god or goddess. And then you could also do those things privately. My wife and I went to Bali a few years back uh, to visit my uncle, who, who uh, is actually the pastor of a church there. And uh, just visiting our family, we had done a two-week trip uh, in another city in Indonesia before that with a group of uh, people from the harbor just doing outreach in the streets. And uh, the interesting thing about Bali is that it is a Hindu, it's a Hindu island. The rest of Indonesia, it's actually the largest Muslim country in the world, but this one island, when the Muslims came through, uh, they were killing the people, the Balinese people, but they refused to turn from Hinduism. It was such a stronghold. So the, the Muslims just gave up and said, ah, oh, the heck with them. We just keep killing them and they won't relent. We'll just move on to the next island. So it's a really, it's a real stronghold of Hinduism in this island of Bali. And as you walk around the city, uh, you'll notice these, these tiny little kind of boxes made of um, like um, palm branches or things like that, like kind of a natural thing. And in there are these little items of food and flowers. You'll see them kind of just strewn all over the city. And they're little sacrifices to gods, and they offer them all over the place in the city of Denpasar, which we were in, and all over the island. And that's a private way of worshiping a god or offering a little sacrifice to try to please that god or offset some curse or something that you see that's going wrong in your life that you think it's because you've displeased the gods. It's a private way of worshiping. And so... It's very similar to the pagan way of worshiping back in the Greco-Roman Empire. It was a very individual experience. You go to the temple when you want. There's no corporate gathering of all of the followers of Artemis or something like that. And you could offer things privately, but there was no community around it. Does that sound familiar to anybody? We live in the Western culture, which is very individualistic, right? We get to choose which church we want to go to, and, and fortunately for us, there's multiple churches in our city and in this area, right? We get to think off, we often think about, you know, how does the worship band sound? 
How's, how's the sermon? Right? Am I being fed? Right? Am I going to make friends at this church? Now, that's not to say you shouldn't church shop. I'm not bashing that. But oftentimes, our frame of reference around the way that we relate to God is, is this individualistic experience. Jesus calls us not just to himself, but to each other. Jesus' calling is one of community. The first thing that it comments after this big explosion of the church and all these people are made is that it is a new community. And it lists all these different things that they start to do as a community. It's giving them a new identity, a new, uh, a new culture even is being formed in this early church as they are called to one another. One of the things that um, stuck out to me about the harbor when I first started attending was this uh, amazing feeling of being known and still being loved and accepted. When I came to the harbor, I just graduated from seminary. I was single. I was struggling with some different issues in my life, including just kind of singleness, sexuality, different issues around that. And um, I confessed some of those things to someone. Actually, it was Neil Hubacher, the lead pastor of this church before me, the founding pastor. And when you confess things like that, especially sexual sin in your life, that's a real place of vulnerability. And to be able to say those things to someone and still be accepted, it wasn't like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? But then just to be, okay, great, let's talk about it. That feeling was was absolutely incredible. That is what God calls us to as a people. We need each other. And God calls us not just, hey, follow me as an individual, follow me as a couple, follow me as a family. Now, Gordon students, I want to challenge you a little bit. Gordon College is not a church. Now, there's two big things I want to say about that. I was a Gordon student. I loved Gordon. I made awesome friendships there. I'm a fighting Scot. I play basketball, okay? I'm rooting for the home team, okay? But you can't go there after you graduate. Once you graduate, if you start going back, people will start looking at you like you're a little weird, all right? And secondly, you can't bring people into that community. When I was at Gordon, I was part of the student ministries there my sophomore and junior year, and I led this ministry called Brothers in Christ. I don't think it exists anymore, but it was basically like a men's discipleship kind of Bible study group. And uh, I, I can't remember how often we did, if it was every week or kind of like twice a month or something like that. We used to go to this, uh, this boy's home in Peabody called Lakeside, and uh, just a, a place of uh, real brokenness. A lot of these boys just, you know, they've been taken from their families in this, in this kind of system of DCF and some of them maybe juvenile court and things like that. And um, we, just would, we would just hang out a couple hours, play basketball, and, and, and hang out with them, you know, read them books, things like that. So the sad thing was is that at, at one point I just had this revelation of like, but I can't bring them into my world. 
And we would even bring them, you know, we bring them to our dorms. This would never be allowed now, but like we would bring them to our dorm rooms and hang out with them. We'd, we'd walk them around the campus and play soccer on the quad and things like that. But it, there was not a community that I could bring them to, right? They were, they were excluded. It was an exclusive community. It's an, it's an educational institution. So Gordon students, I just want to challenge you. That, you know, there, there, was, there was a sense of kind of loss there for me in knowing, man, this is an awesome ministry, but I, but I can't really bring them into my life. And so my challenge to you guys is just, you know, the same as all of us, but don't leave church out of your four-year college plan. Because when you graduate, if you plug into a church, you will still have a family that you can always fall back to. Even if you don't end up living here when you graduate, you can always say, I have family at that church. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. We are called to one another. Jesus calls us not just to himself, but to each other. So why should we share life together? I'm giving you the what here. I'm saying, hey, Jesus calls you to live life together. Why should we do that? What are some reasons? Right? What's my motivation here? I mean, do I really need to live with other people? Why would Jesus call me to a community and not just, hey, I can track with Jesus, I can be St. Anthony in the desert by myself, battling demons, okay? I think that was a special calling, by the way. All right, even monks, right, live in community. But why do that? Well, here's, here's three reasons that I would say. The first is this. Communities form culture. Communities shape culture and create culture. We define who we are in relationship to other people. Right? When you, someone says, well, you know, who are you? What, you know, what, kind of, what are you about? What's your name? Well, you know, these, you know, ask questions about their family. We talk about, well, I'm the son of this person or daughter of this person. Or, right, I work in this group of people. I speak a language that's shared. Well, I'm, you know, I'm an American or I'm a Canadian or I'm, I'm a, how would you say it in Spanish if you are from Spain? Español. That's the language, I don't know. España, I don't know. Oh, sorry, my, my Spanish is very rusty. Okay, all right? right? You're a citizen of a country. We define who we even are. Our identity comes from our relationships around us, from the community around us. The movement that Jesus started was not just trying to change individual people, but also to change the world and actually to influence and transform the culture of this world into the culture of heaven. And culture is formed by community. A new way of thinking, a new way of speaking, a new way of acting. Right? And Jesus launches his mission in a community. He calls these disciples to himself. He calls the three, Peter, James, and John, and the twelve. He doesn't say, come follow me, you individuals. He says, come follow me, guys. Let's go camping together. Let's really get to know one another, right? Oh my gosh, Peter, that smells terrible, right? You ate the beans last night. All those things happened, right? This doesn't talk about that in Scripture, but they were getting to know one another. Right? If you're living out in the open field, trust me, right? There's no closed bathrooms. Like, you're, you're experiencing some life together, okay? That stuff happened, guys. Like, Jesus went to the bathroom, okay? I'm just putting it out there. He is God. He was a person. He's living life with these guys. They're traveling, right? They're camping. That's, you know, you, when you travel or you camp, you get to know people really well, Okay? And Jesus launched his mission through the local church. That was the body that he gave. He handed it off to these 12 guys, these community, 
It grew into the, by the time Pentecost came, I think it was like 100 in the room up there, and then obviously it's thousands of people. But what happened immediately after that? They're gathering as communities. They're doing it in two places, right? It says a large group in the temple courts, and then they're gathering in homes, right? Generational momentum requires intergenerational communities. Generational momentum requires intergenerational communities. God's kingdom, the culture of heaven, Jesus' culture, if you will, is not just about you and this generation. It is about the next generation and the one after that and the one after that. And God's will is that every generation would build upon what the previous generation has accomplished and knows in terms of depth of understanding of the Scripture, in terms of relationship with the Holy Spirit, in terms of the gospel advancing to every language, tongue, and tribe on this planet. If we do not live in an intergenerational mindset of seeing God's kingdom advance through generations and not just in time, and, like, not just in space, but also in time, right? then we will, we will lose ground. And that requires community, right? The church is called right, to be a diverse people, diverse age, gender, race, socioeconomic status. Sorry, I'm going diagonal now. I don't know what that means, okay? You get the idea. Communities form culture, and that is what God is after. He's after transforming the culture of this world, renewing it, renewing community. We have to be a community to create and carry that. Secondly, following Jesus is difficult, and you need other people's help. Even the Lone Ranger had Tonto, which means he's not the Lone Ranger. I don't know how that makes any sense, okay? What Jesus calls us to is way more intense, okay, is way more intense than what our larger culture kind of shows us is the American dream or the difficulties of life. He's telling you to love your enemies. He is telling you to be willing to give everything up for him. He's he's calling you to say your commitment to me is above every other relationship in your life. And if you have to lose everything because someday Christians are persecuted in this country, Jesus is saying, don't let go of that. Give everything for me. That's hard to do, guys. That's hard to do. We need other people for encouragement, support. Gosh, even just believing that there's a God sometimes is difficult, right? That there's a God out there and that he loves me and that he's involved in my life. Everything in our culture is screaming in the opposite direction. There is no God. If he's there, he doesn't care about us because look at all the evil in the world, right? Legitimate question. Legitimate challenge. The church is called to walk with each other through the difficult places of life and to help each other when we've been hurt by someone else to still love and forgive them. It is not easy and we need other people. All right, I'll move on. You're getting it. Number three, we we were just created for community, Okay? You are not a raven. You are a crow. Okay, sorry, not bird lovers like me. Let me explain, okay? Ravens are solitary animals. Now, crows and ravens are two of the smartest uh, kind of animals that are out there, and, and some of the smartest among birds, obviously, as well then. But they're different in terms of their social, social structures. Ravens are a little bit larger. They've got a little bit of a longer beak. 
their, 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 their call is a little bit more kind of uh, raspy and guttural um, than a crow. And I'm really nerding you out here. Sorry. Um, and so that's how you can identify if you see a raven. They're not actually very common around here, and usually you see them in kind of wooded areas. And their tail is more of a box shape, whereas a crow is more of a fan. Okay, there you go. Now you'll know. A but they usually travel solitarily or in pairs. But crows are very social creatures. And so they can travel in, in large groups. If you see a group of more than two, it's probably a crow of blackbirds flying overhead. Right? They have that distinct caw. Ah, okay? But they're social creatures. They live in, even up in, into colonies in some areas of thousands. Right? Thousands. They actually were, were, were hunted and poisoned in this country for, for many years because if you can imagine a, a thousand crows descending on your cornfield, like what that would do to your, to your crops, right? Now there's genetically modified corn, so it's like not a problem anymore and all that stuff. But the crows are making a comeback. All this is to say, sorry, I go way too far on that crow analogy. All right. You're a crow. You're not a raven, right? You're not called just to do with you and one other person, you and your spouse, or you, know, you and your best friend and your roommate. You are called to a larger community, right? That as a crow would have a negative impact on a cornfield with its thousands of, of brother and sister crows, we are called to have a major impact on this world. But it happens in the numbers. It happens in a family group. So what are the barriers to sharing life with other people in the local church? I think here's the greatest barrier. Number one, I don't have the time. Everyone's busy, and of course, this is an excuse, as we would all say, but we often say it. And I would liken it to, I can't, I'll try, or I have to. Which is, what we talked about in our love series, is, is not how, what, the language that powerful people use. You have the ability to make choices. You have the ability to organize your life. So, the simple question that I would give you is, ask Jesus if you have the time. I don't think he's going to let you off the hook on this one. But if he does, then that's cool. Okay? Because foundation of all else, as we talked about the last two weeks, is our relationship with God. We are led by the Spirit. We believe that every person can hear God's voice and have a dynamic relationship with him that is totally awesome and enjoyable, and God moves us forward. But if you find yourself saying that as a reason of why I can't plug into community or why I can't share life with people, I just would challenge you, ask Jesus about that. Maybe he will say, Gordon College students, hey, I want you to take these four years and really plug into Gordon. I'm, letting, I'm, I'm releasing you from kind of, you know, the biblical, I wouldn't call it a command, but the biblical model of sharing life in a local church. Okay? So you just ask Jesus about that. Number two, and these get a little harder. Okay? I'm not sure that I will be accepted or included. That is a real concern. Because maybe for many of you in your life, there's been, there's been places where you haven't been accepted or included. And so behind that statement, and I, I just want to say, if that is you, I'm so sorry, especially if the church was, it, was, was the cause of that. And I'm so proud of you if you have come here this morning, even daring to come to a church on a Sunday morning and be around people when you've been hurt in the past because of being excluded in a church. So what, but what I want to say is that what's behind that often is just a place of fear. 
when we get hurt in our lives, when we're let down by other people, wounded in some way, that's always the place the devil, the, the, the place that the devil wants to get us is to make us afraid to try it again. Because it is a risk. You are taking a risk. Community is risky. Relationships are messy because people are messy. And so throwing yourself in means I am willing to endure pain. I am willing to take a risk that I will be hurt in community because chances are, if you're really going deep with people, if you're really sharing life, someone will hurt you. But do you hear the voice of strength instead of the voice of fear behind this, guys? It's Jesus' voice. He's saying, there is life there. I will give you what you need to forgive. And I'll give you what you need to forgive again. And I'll give you what you need to love, even that person feels like an enemy. Reason number three, and this is related to number two, I've tried and haven't been able to connect with other people. So maybe you're even a part of this church, and you feel like, man, I've tried to connect, and I just feel like I don't connect, you know, I don't share similar interests, or just conversationally, I can't, you know, I can't, just feel like I haven't gotten past the kind of acquaintance phase. So in both of these two and three, again, it's a similar question, I would just challenge you, hey, what is Jesus saying to you about that? Maybe he's saying, hey, you need to go to a different church. That's great. Do what Jesus is telling you to do. Maybe he's saying, take another chance. Reach out to this person. Join this group. Give it another shot. So last thing I want to talk about, um, how do I actually share life with people? What does it look like to be a community and what do I do? So in this passage, we see, a, it's, it's really, it's, in a lot of ways, it's kind of just a list of the different activities that the church is doing and some of the things that they're experiencing. And here's just a quick summary of that, right? They're devoted to the apostles' teaching. So for us, that's the Bible now, right? Old Testament and New. They have, they have the Old Testament, but it, specifically it says here what the apostles were teaching. They're, I'm sure they were referencing and teaching out of the Old Testament. You have fellowship. You have prayer. It says they were praising God. They're breaking bread. They're sharing resources, and, and there's signs and wonders being performed. This is kind of the activity base. So this is really what, we, what it looks like to share life with other people. And as one of you mentioned, the everyday, or two of you mentioned the everyday piece, that there's, there's a sense of rhythm, okay? Now, I don't think this is saying that all believers everywhere have to gather every day of the week. It's really just reporting what was happening then, but Luke is trying to highlight specific things to show what this new culture and community looked like and some of the different things that they were doing. So I want to show this slide up here. Um, I used this a few years ago and uh, just used the Olympic rings to make it memorable. But these are the different places of intersection we see in the Bible. The one represents you and Jesus. Yes, you are called to a relationship with Jesus, and that actually is first. That We want every person to have a, a relationship with Jesus where they can hear God for themselves, where they can be discipled by Jesus. Jesus says, you don't need anyone to teach you. I'm your teacher, right? I say this a lot of times. Jesus is your Yoda. You're not looking for the Yoda. You have a Yoda. His name is Jesus, right? And he's given you the Holy Spirit if you put your faith in him to lead you and teach you. And that doesn't mean we don't need each other, but I'm just saying that's first. We're following Jesus. We're getting time with him. We're giving him our attention and our appreciation. Okay, we're carving that out in our lives. 
But secondly, we see this group of two to four people. So Jesus had a group of four. It was him and Peter, James, and John. They were the three that he gathered. We see that happen as Jesus sends out in Luke chapter 10. He sends people out of the surrounding towns. How does he send them out? By themselves? No, in groups of two, right? And then gathers them back together. We see this small group pattern. And then we see tens. We see the number, you know, kind of a a house gathering. We see that in this passage. They gathered in houses. Now, there were some wealthy people that had houses that could house, as I've read, about maybe up to 50 people. But many of the houses were not. They're gathering in a small group of people. Okay, we see that with Jesus and the 12. It's this kind of, right right 10 is kind of, you know, a round number around that size. And then, obviously, we see the people in this passage gathering in the temple courts. That's a larger group gathering like this setting right here. There's about 100 in the room. I'm just throwing up 100. Okay, if we go to 1,000, maybe we'll change the number of 1,000. I don't know. Okay? The point is we see these different places of intersection and different advantages to each of these, these, these size groups. Right? In a group of two to four, you can get real with people. There's just more space in the room when there's only two to three people or four people sharing. There's just more space. It's a more intimate connection. Okay? Obviously, a group of ten right, has a family feel. Right? You, you can share more resources that way. You can care for one another, meet people's needs in that group. Okay? You can really get to know people in a smaller group setting. And then obviously in the 100, there is a place right, for gathering in a large group, okay? just like this. Now, different movements emphasize different ones of these numbers. The church in America for a long time has emphasized this 100. We've said, hey, Sunday morning's the deal. We're gathering lots of people together. That's what we're doing. House churches in China, right? They're saying every house is a church. The explosion in the last like, couple decades in China, the believers, that's kind of one of these two circles of two to four, maybe more like the ten. It's kind of the house church model. What's happening in the Muslim world right now, especially with discovery Bible studies and what's called disciple-making movements, they're little churches of two to four people gathering in kind of secret places but then multiplying like rabbits all over the place, Okay? So different movements have emphasized different numbers, but we see all of these things across the Scripture. They're all valuable in different, in different ways. <clears throat> so here's, here's my challenge to you, okay? I'm going to get real practical here at the end. In a few moments, we're going to have uh, our life group leaders come up, and which, is our, which is our circle of ten, okay? And that's where we gather in homes to, 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 ju- to just connect and share life together. All right? We see that model in Scripture. And they're going to come share and invite you into those groups. Now, Anita, can you put that other slide up there? These are some of the emphases of our life groups. Okay? Very similar to Acts chapter 2. That's kind of where this is founded upon. They're word-centered. So we're studying the Bible, the apostles' teaching. Presence-based. We're praising God like we hear. And we're praying. We're forming relationships. Fellowship. And we're mission-focused where it says people are being added to their number daily. We're looking for ways to reach out to our neighbors and friends. So this is what a life group is about. Okay? So our leaders are, have this in their mind. That's what you're encountering in one of these life groups. And we're wanting to be on mission together as a family in a life group. And again, Jesus right, calls us not just to himself, but to each other. Being in a life group is one step of doing that. Secondly, I want to mention is just this, the, the language that we use in Antioch and at the harbor is this language of discipleship. And when we say that word, what we usually mean is that two to four group, where you're gathering in a smaller setting to really get to know someone, to get real with someone, be able to confess sin, 
be transparent with your life and still be accepted in love. Have people there that will pray for you and challenge you in your life. We are all about this at the harbor. My goal would be for everyone to be in a life group and a discipleship group. It may not be feasible in your life at this stage to do everything. Okay? But I want to challenge you to ask God, what is the next step for me? Now, a couple of things I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to point out just in terms of discipleship. The first is, um, if you know someone in your life that you think <clears throat> would be interested in reading the Bible, someone starts talking about God or something, you can just ask a simple question, hey, would you ever want to just kind of read the Bible together? We have a way for you to do that. And this is based off of actually what I mentioned that's, that's exploding in the Muslim world, these discovery Bible studies and disciple-making movements. You could do that in America. We have these bookmarks out there. I can't have the time to go through it right now, how to do it. But it's a very simple process. The Lord really wants you to do this, okay? Of just leading someone through them encountering Jesus on their own. Not you teaching them. You just asking some very basic questions and leading them to some Bible passages where they can discover God on their own. Which actually is also very helpful for them knowing that Jesus is their Yoda and not you. Okay? So, these are out on that table. It's a great way for someone that is, that is a pre-believer or a new believer to encounter God on their own and learn how to study the Bible. And if this is not enough for you, we can train you how to do it. If you say, hey, I've got someone in my life that is not a Christian, I will meet with you and help you learn how to disciple that person. Got it? That would be awesome. Secondly, <clears throat> our movement put out this Disciple Maker's Handbook. The thing is actually like 256 pages long. It's just massively filled with all kinds of discipleship lessons. If you want a copy of that, I can send it to you as a PDF. But I put together uh, some core lessons. There's, there's, a, there's about a, half, a, a dozen, sorry, two dozen lessons in this that if you know someone that is a new believer or if you are a new believer and want to just say, man, I just want to go a little bit deeper. I want to know kind of, some of the core foundational stuff. Grab one of these and, and talk to me if you don't have anyone to go through. Just pull a friend in and say, hey, let's go through these lessons together. I feel like there's some stuff in here I want to learn. These are available for you out there, okay? Thirdly is this. Liz Ball developed this. Sorry, Liz, I didn't ask if I could share this, but I, I assume it's okay. But Liz Ball, developed, Liz Ball developed an amazing discipleship process for someone that maybe you've been a believer for a little bit longer time, or even if it's new, you can do this too. It's called Seven Spheres. We've got some handouts out there, but it's kind of like a rule of life. If you've heard of St. Benedict and his rule of life, it's a, it's a process of discipling someone where you're meeting with someone and they're setting goals in all these, different, these seven different spheres of their life. So spirit, how you're relating to God, socially, your relationship in your life, study, how you're studying the Bible and, and learning, skills in your own life, so career and other things like that, service, how you're serving the church and others in your life or, or in the community, salvation, how God is, is leading you to reach out to others, and then Sabbath, a place of rest in your life. How are you exercising that? And then also another category of sin, just, you know, what are some areas of sin in your life that God's working on? So this is an amazing thing that I've been using with some different people, and I just would highly recommend. There's handouts there if you want to look at that. And uh, if you are looking for someone to be in a discipleship relationship with, the first thing I would say is ask a peer. Ask someone, because they might be thinking the same question. And also, if there's someone that you really look up to, that you know in the church, ask them if they will disciple you. See if they've got the time, okay? And those that are further along in the faith, look for someone to disciple. You know in your own life that there's many seasons where you have longed to have someone disciple you and mentor you. So if you feel like you've got any bandwidth to disciple someone that's younger than you or a different stage, look for those people. 
Ask God to put them, to highlight them. Even as you're walking around in church, say, God, is there someone here you want me to be meeting with? Or ask them, hey, if if you'd like to do this. Okay? Oh my gosh, it's 1130. All right. It's cramming too much into this thing. I hope some of these things are practical for you. 